Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal. I spent some time in upstate New York in the heart of the snow belt in December 2021 trying to understand how building design can minimize the impacts of severe winter weather on structures. Prolonged snow on roofs is a problem in these parts of the country where we have very long winters. Uh, snow can produce heavy snow loads on roofs that can cause roofs to fail. I also wrote a blog post about something called an ice dam where we have prolonged snow cover on roofs that melting snow on the roof can uh, refreeze as the water reaches the eaves and the edge of the roof. This can dam water back up under the shingles and actually flood houses even if you're on the top of a hill. Uh, in my journeys I came across Camden, New York, an area that receives more than 200 inches of snow per year. It's northeast of Syracuse and I made a friend named Mark Rayom. Mark is the local building code official in Camden. He lives in Osceola which gets even more snow than that. Mark and I had a very animated discussion. He loves history, loves literature and really has a great heart behind what it means to be a public servant helping people out in that part of the country how to design better for severe winter weather. I'm here in Camden, New York with Mark Rayom, a very interesting a guy with a lot of uh, experience of history and uh, oh he's gonna yell at me now. That's my head exploding. His head's exploding. <laughs> We're we've just talked about Pearl Harbor, about Guadalcanal, about CBs, about the the U.S. Constitution, and now we're talking about Hurricane Camille. So we're all over the place today. Absolutely. Um, as as uh, Hurricane Hal and I were talking about, um, just different storms and so forth. In a lot of ways, it's just it's just old toads like me that actually bring some of the color narrative back to some of the storms that you may have missed because you weren't born back then. Uh, you've been down in Galveston. Um, and, of course, the devastation down in Galveston. And actually, that was the kind of the infancy, I guess, of, uh, of national weather reporting and forecasting and everything else. That's right. You know, um, the Cuban weather forecaster, they, they kind of knew something was up in the Gulf. And I think the Americans kind of, you know, downplayed that and didn't want to listen to the Cubans. And I think after that, it really started better forecasting in the U.S., but also realizing, wait, what people are saying in the Yucatan of Mexico, Cuba, these other places, we need to listen to it. And, and, and the reason I like stuff like that is my favorite historical character is Benjamin Franklin. Why is that? Well, because he was actually... Uh, he figured out the Gulf Stream when they were traveling back and forth to uh, to Europe, um, because he was he was a curious cat in a curious world and very uh, very obs he'd take observations and and track everything, but also too, um, he had mentioned to his brother who was working up in Boston about a uh, a solar eclipse that was coming up, but the thing was is his his brother saw it but he didn't because of a storm that had actually passed through the area. He's thinking. Okay, well, there's cyclones and anti-cyclones. I mean, he, he was a renaissance man. Fact of the matter is, he would have been great in any age. But like I said, he, he was able to take a look at things, and he was curious about them, wrote them down, and, and actually formulated uh, certain theories of, about just his observations. Uh, the same could be said for probably maybe Plato or Socrates or, or Aristotle. You know, some of these old early Americans like uh, Franklin and Jefferson, they, they, had this, they had this real like uh, knowledge of so many different categories, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and for like a lot of people too, if, if I'm not learning something new every day, I ask myself, what did I do with my day? Also, too, if I don't find myself interesting, how would I expect anyone else to feel I'm interesting as well? Yeah, I can tell you love learning, exploring. Uh, so you spent a bunch of time overseas. I mean, what, what were some of the most, um, the travels that shaped you the most? In a, in a lot of ways, especially for uh, maybe kids of my age growing up in the, in the parochial and school district or public school um, sector, is that to take a look at countries that you read about and, and as Al, Hal and I were talking about, to stand before the Acropolis and just 
Oh, you know, I read about this, but here I am standing at basically the, the birthplace of, of Western philosophy and, and thought. It, uh, it, it was humbling me. And, and the fact and you were, what, 19 years old, right? When I you was 19. Yeah, absolutely. 19. Um, and this is actually before we were deployed to the, the, to the Persian Gulf the first time. But uh, the whole thing was, is like, you know, you look at the Acropolis and, well, how come I, I need to know why there's a big hole in it? <laughs> <laughs> and that would actually uh, extend back to the history associated when the Turks were actually storing uh, black powder in there, and it took an artillery hit and it blew out the side of the building. So how did traveling that young shape your life, right? Because a lot of times people just gut it out and they say, well, after 30 years of work, I can retire and I can travel, but you were traveling at a young age. Um, the, the, the one thing that uh, we had not mentioned is I spent uh, the better part of my youth actually traveling for Uncle Sam. Um, and, and the one thing that it actually kind of gave me is a broader perspective because a lot of people in America look at the world through their American eyes. I think, I think you could probably agree with that. Uh, but to actually go overseas, you're actually experiencing, you're breathing the air, you got feet on the ground, and, and you're talking with these folks and you get a better appreciation for some of the things that, it, that I, I guess, influence their lives growing up. Now, you can't, grab, you can't capture the entire flavor. That would be presumptuous. But the whole thing is, is you can see what's going on. You can ask questions. You can interact with these folks. And, and as you and I had talked earlier, what's the international currency wherever you go? Right. Laughter, right? Laughter. <laughs> exactly. And, um, and, it, and it's really kind of great um, in, in ways that I did, especially with, the, uh, with my military service. We were construction people. We went everywhere. We were actually a part of the State Department. So if, if there was a natural disaster someplace uh, anywhere on the globe, what we would actually, they would actually send us in. We were the militarized Peace Corps, I guess, for the lack of a better term. And then we would put up schools or drill water wells and everything else. But you're actually interacting with the community and the local populace, and, and, and it was really great. So it expands... Um, your, your, your awareness of what's happening in the world to find out that, you know, we're kind of all the same. Yeah. I mean, what do you think we can do to get our youth and, you know, the kids growing up today, more global awareness, a broader view of the world? Turn off your phones. <laughs> You're going to get thumb cancer. You keep sending all these text messages. Um, one of the things that are really important is people need to talk. The, a, an email is not talking. Uh, a text message is not talking. In fact, talking with your peers, you're actually talking in a circle. Um, the, the, uh, the, the political columnist Will Rogers always said, you know, it's like, hey, don't, don't be inside a circular firing squad. You, you have to get out there and just kind of mix it up. As, as an older cat like I am, I'll be, I'll be 62 coming up this, this coming year, I've always made the effort to talk with strangers. And, and to kind of break those, those barriers down. Not, not, not everybody engages, but the, the fact of the matter is you ask enough questions because we play the 20 questions. Hey, where are you from? You know, you're married, you got kids, whatever the case may be. We all have the same experiences, especially here in America, but even overseas, internationally in the community. What are they trying to do? You know what? They, they want a good education. They, they want to they wanna find love and get married and have a family. And they yeah, want, the same things, right? They, they want the very same things. They just speak potentially a different language. 
but the the human community is, is pretty much the same wherever you go and that's that's invigorating it's really kind of cool yeah that is so interesting um you're right as you travel around even if the languages are different you you have you know laughter smiles a lot of nonverbals go a long way right when you're face to face with people in any country you begin to say you know these people aren't that different than maybe my friends and family back home even if you take a look at facial expressions the way people kind of look you know this way or, or how they use their hands there's an old joke about a, a couple of Italian guys walking in winter and, and one guy, his friend's just talking away and he goes, well, what's the matter? You don't have anything to say? He goes, no, I forgot my gloves. <laughs> That's great. So, so the nonverbals using their hands, right? <laughs> he couldn't talk without his hands being outside his pockets. But uh, from, a, from a weather perspective, it's a big, I'm going to say that it's a big ass world. So we have weather extremes that are actually down in Antarctica, which are, are brutal. And to take a look at, at Scott and all those explorers that went down there, how did they, how did they put up with that? Um, but we also have, as you mentioned, you've been down to Death Valley, the, the extreme opposite of, of weather. And it's all tied together. And there's a balance that Mother Nature strikes that, uh, that allows us to go ahead and live here. But it's dynamic. And, and that meaning is it's, it's always moving, always changing. All, I would tell people, it's like, what about climate change? And I'm, I'm going to step off the deep end for a little while. Yes, but weren't the Anasazi in the desert southwest, weren't they growing the, the three sisters and they had a very vibrant community? But that changed because it started to dry up. Now, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I understand this is we're on the downside of the Wisconsin Ice Age. I kind of feel, and you could correct me, but it's probably going to get warmer before it gets colder again. Yeah, you know, what we've always had, um, when you look back at the Earth's history, you see tremendous changes in wet versus drought, sure. and cold versus warm, and we're on this uh, cycle of warming now for thousands of years. I mean, you can go to coastal Maine and see the grooves in the rocks where there used to be, you know, hundreds or thousands of feet of ice above there, you know, but that was gone even long before the Industrial Age, so we've been in this warming trend for some time. Interestingly enough, if you go down to New York City, where I have never been, uh, it, I kind of think it's the angriest place on the planet from a, from a, a metropolitan uh, perspective, but there are grooves in Central Park where the glaciers actually drove rocks through that you can actually see they're on the surface. Now, from a, a, a glacial standpoint from that timeline, um, did you have a chance to, well, I mean, you're familiar with the Finger Lakes. How are they formed? Oh, yeah, carved out by glaciers, for exactly. sure. Exactly. And um, since Hal's up here, in, um, he was visiting in Lewis County earlier, um, a lot of the property that I have up there, it's all glacial till. So oh, yeah. there's, there's just a thin layer of soil. And then you hit the rock, and yeah. there's nothing you can do about it. Exactly. And this, to give a little context, we're here in Camden, New York. This is uh, just really south of the Tug Hill Plateau, which is the snowiest place in the eastern part of uh, North America. So even in Camden, though, you get some pretty big snows around here in the wintertime. How do people deal with that? How do they adapt to it? Are there ways they, they build differently to, to handle these heavy snow loads? That's an excellent question. The, um, as we'd kind of talked on the phone very briefly yesterday, the, the area where I live, which is the Tug Hill, it's the upswell before you actually start to get into the Adirondacks. Well, if you take a look west, you have moisture that comes off of Lake Superior. You have moisture that comes off of Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, and it slams up against us. The plateau is actually the former shoreline of the old Lake Ontario, which I guess paleontologists call uh, Lake Iroquois. Uh, just a kind of a reference and a hat tip back to the, the local Indians. I happen to be Iroquois. Um, used to be before it started to uh, just, it started to taper off. 
So we get about 300 inches of snow over the course of the, the winter time. Now, having said that, we don't have 300 inches of snow on the ground at all times. As Hal could mention earlier, we're kind of a wet, cold environment. And it really doesn't start to hit for cold until about maybe January, February, where temperatures could reach negative 37 at night and warm up to a balmy negative 25 during the day. How do we deal with that? Well, it's a lot of trial and error. It's based upon hundreds of years of people who have lived here in the past. And of course, my job here in Camden is to actually to oversee code enforcement. But we're back here with, with Mark in Camden, New York, talking about what well, we were talking about, the heavy snow here and about how maybe people build to, to handle it. Even, I guess, from my position, code enforcement is primarily about making sure that people don't trip down the wrong path when they want to go ahead and build something. We have an obligation morally, but also for me, I have an obligation legally to make sure that they don't get hurt or maybe that they, they, they plunk down their hard-earned coin to build something and then maybe sell it off to somebody else. We have an obligation to make sure that they're not buying into something that was poorly structured, poorly built. Um, so in that way, we have we have the national um, uh, building codes requirements that are actually on my desk, just back behind me. And in a lot of ways... At this point, our podcast recording was interrupted by two gentlemen that came in for a building permit. You have to understand that Mark was graciously taking time out of his busy workday. The phones were ringing. People were asking questions. People were coming in for building permits. Nonetheless, he took time to share his expertise with us for this podcast. Well, these two gentlemen that came in, one of them was named John Heverin. His family's lived in upstate New York for hundreds of years. He has a lot of valuable insights on building properly in heavy snow country and shared some stories with us for the podcast. This next part is not Mark. Mark Rayom. It's John Heverin, a customer that came in for a building permit. And he starts off by sharing a story about someone from New Jersey that came up and built subpar construction that was never going to survive a winter on the Tug Hill Plateau and the heavy snow there in that part of upstate New York. How many times have you, so you said that that building was flattened. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's the only one I've experienced other than old buildings. But this was a new building up on the Creek Road in Point Rock. And and so you knew, by the way, they're designing it. This I isn't going to... Uh, by the design that this was never going to hold up to a, a winter on, on Creek Road. Um, it's not uncommon to go to bed at night and see green grass and wake up in the morning and have three foot of snow on the ground up there. And a lot of times it's heavy, wet snow. Heavy, wet snow. And, and sure enough, we got one of those storms. Um, like I said, they were great people. I had uh, Frank's phone number. I drove up by to check on his camp. And I could tell when I pulled up to the road that I didn't see the roof line standing anymore. I walked up in there, snapped a couple pictures, and I had to call this gentleman in Point in, in wow. New Jersey and tell him that his camp in Point Rock was flattened. It and was a total loss. Do you feel like he maybe built it like something that would hold in Jersey but not hold up here? Yes, absolutely. Um, he argued with me. I told him what he needed to do. He, he wanted the open cathedral ceiling and he said he had great contractors that came up and built it and i i tried to explain to him i said that's not going to work in this environment and it didn't so so you weren't really surprised that the roof failed on that no not at all i i seen the writing on the wall as soon as i looked at the building what was it based on based on the slope or based on the he had a a 12 12 pitch roof which was awesome but he shingled it and he, he had no ridge pole, he had no collar ties going across, tying the rafters together. And when all the, the weight of that snow got on the roof, it just bowed the exterior walls out. 
and blew the walls right out and flattened the roof. Wow, so it just it just it just failed right yeah. from the from the heavy weight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of times I think people might come here from other places and not be familiar with they, how they, how severe the wind is. They don't realize what they're getting into when they move up here. I was born and raised in Camden. My family's been in Camden for actually um, we settled in the Long Lake area, my ancestors did, so we've been in upstate New York our whole lives for a couple hundred years, and uh, I I know what it takes to get a building to survive a winter up here. Yeah, so uh, Mark and I were talking about that, just uh, how you build is everything. And I guess the, the slope and also if you shingle it versus metal, right? Yeah, in, in this neck of the woods, especially on a building you're not going to be in every day and keeping an eye on, um, I'm a firm believer in a steel roof and a steep pitch, and that way you have no worries. I've I've got a camp up there right next door to his that uh, was built in 1984, and that's got a 12-12 pitch with a steel roof, and I don't even go up and shovel it. I will go in every once in a while and start a fire in the wood stove, and all the snow slides off the roof, and we're good till the next Oh, so time. if you warm it up inside, that'll... Yeah. That'll that'll basically melt a thin layer yep, on the roof. And it'll get the it'll get the roof to slide off and clean off. So how often in the winter will you go up there and build a fire to get it to slide off? Depends on the snowfall. I mean I usually go in once a month and check on the camp. I we plow snow for a living, so I got a good idea how much snow the area is getting. And if we get a big heavy storm I'll snowshoe into camp and now my camp's a very rustic camp. There's no insulation in the attic. It's it's open to the to the wood planks on the roof and so when i go in and start a, a fire in the wood stove while the heat goes up in the loft first and it causes the snow to slide off the roof so uh, i'd imagine if you if you, you need to have it so that the heat from the fire can go up and uh, directly affect the roof right so if you had basically like a, a ceiling and and that you could have an insulated attic up there but you want to have a couple trap doors that you can open up and let some heat get up in the attic and and it's a little with a camp, it's a little different idea than a house. You you want the heat to, to get up there and get to things. Um, I mean, my camp's 16 by 24, so if it was fully insulated with the wood stove in there I have, it, it would dry. You wouldn't even be able to stay in there with a the fire going. I mean, we get at 80 degrees in there without insulation, so... Yeah, that's interesting. Last question, uh, as far as getting uh, snow off the roof, so sometimes people will shovel it. it. How do you deal with that if you have a steep pitch, though? Um, you can. The old-timers will take a, a rope, and they'll run the rope from one gable end of the roof to the other gable end, and you can use, like, a song motion with the rope, and you cut down through the snow, and it'll cause the snow to slide off the roof. Because my roof, there's no getting on it. You're not going to stay on it when there's snow it's, it's on it. It's just too steep. It's too steep, too slippery. It'll come off. Yeah, thank you. And what is your name again? John Heverin. John, nice to meet you. I'm Hal Needham. We do this for GeoTrack. It's a lot of stories of how communities deal with extreme weather. So we're up here doing some stories on extreme snow. No better place than Tug Hill. Yeah, I'm glad I, I ran into you this morning. Yes. I'm glad I could share that story. <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you.
John had shared an insight on the building design of his camp. He said it had a 12-12 pitch roof in the heart of the snowbelt. One of the most important terminologies I learned about building design has to do with the roof slope or the roof pitch, the same thing. Really, two numbers are given. The first number is the change in vertical distance. The second number is the change in horizontal distance. So when John said he had a 12-12 pitch roof, that means for every 12 inches that you move horizontally, you also move 12 inches vertically. It's a 45 degree angle there on the roof. A more common pitch would be, for example, a 612 roof. That means that the distance changes six inches vertically for every 12 inches horizontally. You see a lot of 612 and 412 roofs there, but the higher the first number, the steeper the slope, and the more likely that heavy snow will slide off the roof. This is what we call our Friday unscripted conversation with Mark and Camden. We're going to talk about like everything. The question is, what will we not talk about? Okay, so. Um Hal and I had kind of launched into a little bit of my earlier career. And what I've been doing before code enforcement was I was building water and wastewater treatment plants um, all over the country, including Canada. And uh, people would ask me at a, at a conference, they say, well, why, why do you get so into water and wastewater? I said, oh, let me tell you. I said, we take water that's unnaturally pure in the environment. Now, would you take a drink out of a mountain stream? Oh, heck no. A lot of bacteria in there. Well, because, you know, you got elk, you know, dying off or you got, you know, critters just kind of using it for a dumper and so forth. You can get Giardia, which you're familiar. Remember that? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, you'll be sick for 30 days and there's, there's no way around it. But uh, with water and wastewater, we take water that's unnaturally pure in the environment. And we use biology and chemistry and high voltage electricity and pumps and pipes and computers and all these things. So we can introduce it into your distribution system so you can turn on that tap and take a drink and of course prepare food and and, and wash your kids and everything else and I, you're also going to take a dump in it and I want that water back and people are horrified it's like you want that water back why I said because we take that same water. We use biology and chemistry and high voltage electricity and pumps and pipes and all the uh, apparatus associated with rendering it safe because we're going to reintroduce it back into the watershed because our neighbors in the next town down are going to take that water out of that source, the river, and use it in the same fashion. In this, in, in, in the way that I look at my career, we safeguard the nation's public health and protect the environment. That's kind of a neat job for yeah. me. It, well, it's so many human impacts. Yeah, and, and the thing was is we don't worry about polio anymore. And my, my dad had polio as a late teen. And although he never had to go into a, an iron lung, fact of the matter is, what's that caused by? Contaminated drinking water. It's one of the reasons that wiped out most of the pilgrims that first winter. That they yeah, when we read back in history, you see just people being wiped out by these things that are not widespread today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we take them for granted, which is really unfortunate because it will come around to take a big bite out of your head if you're, if you're not careful. Because um, there's a... There's, there's diseases that are crossing our borders right now, and I, of course I won't get into that, but those diseases are coming back in and making some headway here in the States where we had essentially wiped them out uh, earlier. So we were talking about code enforcement and uh, the, the reason behind and what, what's the importance associated with it. Building, building and construction here in the United States or anywhere else in, uh, in, in the Western or developing world and so forth is based upon trial and error what failed, how do we learn, what kind of provisions or codes or laws do we pass to make sure that doesn't happen in the future. So what we use, we use the International Building Code, which is actually here in the United States. Um, I'm looking actually at the, uh, the, the manuals over here. 
and they cover a wide variety of, of topics associated with it to include building codes, fire codes, plumbing, mechanical, electrical, fuel can, a whole host of things that normally you and I would see on a daily basis going about our, our, our normal routines. So primarily for me here in Camden is that um, actually, what interrupted us when we were talking earlier is I had a gentleman come in. He wanted to go ahead and raise a shed. Um, and in this particular case, because it was a, a, a small square footage total, um, he didn't have to bring me any, any kind of formalized construction documents, which is fine. But he told me what he was going to do, and he's going to go ahead and building, uh, pull a building permit. And what that will do is that will... Uh, that will cause me to actually take a look, go out there and inspect it, make sure it's going to meet certain requirements of strength and, and, and durability to handle northeastern winters that we have up oh, here. Oh, so that's interesting. So we have the international building code, U.S. building code, but then it sounds like there's a regional or a local concept as well, depending on the local conditions with the weather. A lot of that happens, and it's based upon what the location of where we're at, elevation, and so on and so forth, and the normal weathers that we have in and around here. Uh, what Scott, the, the, the gentleman that pulled the uh, permit um, just a few minutes ago, was talking about, and his friend, is just that we had an unusual winter last winter. Yes, we have established parameters associated with the type of material we use for roofs or the way it's, um, um, the way it's uh, anchored to the ground, the way it's structured, the way there's braces and so forth. But even then, we had roofs collapsing last year, last winter, for the, for the very reasons that we talked about making sure that they, when they build things, they don't underbuild it. What had happened last year is that we had a huge amount of snow. And in some ways, d depending on the composition of the roof, does it hold the snow or does it stick to it? Shingles are really good for holding snow. And then we had a huge warm up and a rain. So some of these roofs, my hunting camp included, had 30 inches of snow on top of it. But then it becomes almost twice as heavy because it became wet and roofs actually collapsed and uh, and we need to avoid stuff like that because it can happen. So it's not just the deep snow, it's if you get deep snow and then maybe it warms up, you get rain on top of that, you're getting very heavy wet load on that roof. As a lot of people don't understand, although we live in the Northeast, it's a cold wet environment. We could get 16 inches of snow overnight, which I've personally had to move, but if we have a warm up, I gotta tell you, it becomes incredibly wet because snow is primarily air. And, but when you add water to it, well, it becomes a slushy, and we all know how heavy that is. And that's, that's detrimental to construction of what any, anything man could actually build. So the question, so say building in a place like upstate New York where we get these tremendous snowfalls in the winter, so how does that work as far as you know, making, ensuring that buildings are built to a high enough standard? Are, are, are there certain standards with the slope or the composition? I mean, how, how can you look at, say, a diagram or a schematic and, and know will this building hold or not? And this is really neat. And it's an important question because if it's a large modern day home, in a lot of ways, there are several different layers of professions that are involved with that to make sure they use their standardized work based upon computations that have been captured over, over time. So you can have an architect go ahead and design your home. You can have a structural engineer come in because they're putting their license on the line based upon their profession and their experience, but they're not pulling it out of thin air. 
They're, they're using established guidelines to go ahead and make it happen. Now, the gentleman that just came in, he's just going to build a shed, but he told me all of the uh, aspects associated of how you would build it, what the steep or the, the slope of the roof would be, because the higher the slope, and in his particular case, if you go, uh, and we talked about this earlier, about 12 and 6 or 12 and 4, which means for every 12 inches to the center of the building, the roof, the, the roof will rise up 6 inches. A 12-6 roof is awfully steep. 12.8 is really steeper, and that will shed a lot of the snow off the roof. Even though snow is a great insulator, it's nice to have a little bit, but not too much. So in his particular case, I'll go out there using the International Building Code guidelines because uh, I don't have to make this up. In fact, I don't want to. That's a liability that I can't bring against the town. You can reference the pre-established guidelines. Exactly. Um, they're, they're based sometimes based on uh, experience that I've gained along that line, but I always have to refer back to the, the codes that are established for this particular area. Um, and then it makes it even for everybody because we're all looking at the same sheet and guidelines. How does that geography break down when you say this area? How is this area defined? In a lot of ways, it's called a, a type two area. Um, we're not as tall as where we were this morning up on the Tug Hill Plateau, which is somewhere in the vicinity of 1,340 um, feet of elevation off of, uh, off of sea level. So we're down a little bit further closer to the, the Mohawk Valley. Um, so, so it's not as high here as it is way up in, in the hills. But like I said, they're all based upon information that has already been established for this geographical location, and that's what we kind of focus on. And, uh, and that gives us guidance moving forward to make sure. So this is a type two area here in Camden. If you went on top of Tug Hill, would it be a different type? It could be a different type, absolutely. And uh, the one thing to do, if you're not quite sure, you can always call a local engineer and say, hey, this is my location. He'll look it up and tell you based upon his information only because he's required to know that or reference it and so he can go ahead and do his do his work. you know mark we're talking about geographic regions for heavy snow here in upstate new york but i've seen the same thing along the gulf coast where you have different wind zones for uh, your criteria for building uh, buildings along say coastal mississippi or alabama yeah and and some of those conditions we actually experience here with the high winds and everything else because we are on the upslope of the adirondack mountains um, and in comparison, the Rockies are actually pretty new mountains, but the Adirondacks are extremely old, some of the oldest mountains here on the, uh, the North American continent. You just can't see them because they're covered with trees. Um, so in that, in that light, even with some of the building collapses that we experienced last year, were they poorly constructed? My initial answer is going to be yes. Um, there wasn't enough structural support and, and bracing in some of the roofs. And when we had that heavy snow, when we had that rain followed immediately, they collapsed. So it's a kind of a, a builder beware, owner beware. You have to make sure that if you have any questions, give us a call because we're out here to protect you and not to have you lose your, you know, lose a lot of money or potentially lose your life. Have you seen times where, you know, people maybe feel like forced to obey the code, but then later they say, wow, I'm thankful that that, that was there to help protect me or at least provide guidance? It's, it's a wonderful question and it's, and it's kind of a double-edged sword. People don't want to spend any more money than they have to. We understand that, but the, the job that we do here is basically two things. I'm here for compliance or non-compliance. It's based upon an established code, which they knew about before they started building. The one thing I personally like to do is I like to engage with maybe a builder or an owner. It's like, how can we make sure that you don't run into trouble? Because in a lot of ways, it's what people don't know.
or didn't know what to ask, that kind of gets them into trouble. And then it puts a really nasty taste in their mouth. Sometimes what we don't know is more dangerous than what we do know, right? It's interesting because people would say, hey, do you have any questions? And I look at them and cock my head and I go, well, I don't know what questions to ask if I don't know what questions to ask. In a lot of ways, even with an experienced builder, I, you know, it's almost like a wolf by the ears at arm's length. Because the thing is, is they're in there for a business. They have to make a profit. They've, you know, the clock is ticking. But in that light, I need to make sure that they do a good job because that's part of my job to make sure that it's the compliance, non-compliance kind of thing. It's almost like legal and illegal. I'm not here about fair. I love your passion for kind of understanding systems. Like you, you kind of see how everything fits into place. You know, it's, it's not just a job for you. You see this tying into the community and you actually see it, I think, at a regional and national and international level as well. It's, it's really important for people to kind of step back just a little bit. And one of the analogies I love to use is you're seeing a problem from sitting here and I'm looking at you, but you're not the problem. It's just that I'm looking at a situation. But you really need to empathize with who you're dealing with. So it's important to go ahead and turn the map around. Put yourself in that position and look back at it. And what would I like to hear? How would I, what kind of guidance would I need to make sure that I stay out of trouble? And I look at it that way for a couple different reasons. You know what? I've been the customer. I've had people come out and do work for me. And, and a lot of times, as, as I've mentioned to you, I travel a lot for work, so I wasn't always there. And then I get back and I'm going, oh my gosh, I can't believe I paid for this. It's done wrong. So in, in that way, because I'm in a position now and it's my responsibility, it, it, morally as a human being, is to make sure that my clients, my neighbors, and, and anyone who comes through that door is given the best advice available to make sure that they stay out of trouble. It doesn't hurt their pocketbook. Because think about it this way from a, a free market society. If I save you money, that means that you have more money to spend on something else or even on yourself to maybe improve your, your condition and your standard of living and everything else. Isn't that the right thing to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we, something that's come up along the Gulf Coast is this idea, you know, everyone wants to get the cheapest price per square foot. But then we start saying, well, wait, if you build junk, you're going to have to, you know, have a lot of, you're going to have a lot of storm damage. You're going to have to replace that roof soon. It's like, is it better to spend, say, 10% more, but you have a much more durable house that when the storm hits, you're not going to have to spend a lot out of pocket? Culturally, and this is, this is unfortunate, and I don't mean to patronize, but Americans are like goldfish. You know, they see a problem and then, then they're distracted for a, a year or whatever the case may be, and they forget about it. And that's, that's tantamount to a disaster that's going to come because it, what is it? Churchill said that, that uh, you, you, you know, if we don't study history, we're doomed to repeat it. No, history will repeat. And that's all there is to it because the human dynamics are, aren't removed from that process. So in the construction field, especially in my particular business, I wanna make sure that the codes and standards that are established, not something that I just pull out of thin air, are applied equally to everyone to make sure that we meet standards and, and avoid liability or uh, avoid lawsuits or anything associated with that that uh, may land us in court. So in my particular case, we adapt to the environment because the environment was here first. If I'm not cutting firewood in the summertime, I can't stay warm in the, in the wintertime. If I'm not growing crops in the spring and you see that cycle that's associated with it, I try to, um, I, I try to work with nature instead of working against nature. Uh, we talked about a, a storm that we had here in the late 90s where it snowed 12 inches that day, which is not unusual. It happens. But then it snowed 12 inches the next day, and then snowed 12 inches the next day. We had almost nine consecutive days 
where barns were collapsing. So it snowed a foot a day for about nine days, right? For about nine days. We've had, if, if you're good with math, that's nine feet of snow. Wait a minute. Let me. Let me. <laughs> I need, I'm a, I'm a, wait, wait, let me carry the one. No, it, it is nine feet. I'm a public school kind of guy. Let me check out my fingers. The uh, so um, in 1989, when we were living in the uh, the western part of the state, we had an ice storm. This was in January, and I woke up in the morning and it was deathly quiet. And I looked out the window and all the trees had basically just folded over. And the reason that it was quiet is because all the power was off. And now this is a nature thing, and, and you can kind of look this up later, but this was in the Rochester area. And by the time it reached 46 degrees in our place, I had to pull out because I had small three kids and we went to stay with my in-laws who had a fireplace, but no, they weren't able to cook food. I brought all my camping gear, so we kind of worked that out. We were without power in January for nine days. And I was thankful because some folks were reaching their 63rd day and they were into February and didn't have power. So it's, it's a thing with nature. And whenever a man thinks he's got a hold on my nature, she'll, she'll come around and slap him. And think about that. That's in the heart of wintertime too, in, in the north where it's really cold, uh, 63 days without power. But, but think about it this way too. We both lived out in Colorado for, for a while. And Oh, Denver must be horrible. Yeah, Denver's terrible. <laughs> it's sunny and 52 every day, but no one knows. You know, it seems like out there in the, in the front range of the Rockies, you get about six days of sunshine a week and one day of snow. And yeah. it's, never really, uh, cl- it's never really just cloudy and for prolonged. It's either snowing or sunny, it seems. Yeah. The, the one thing you might remember, there's 300 days of sunshine per year out there. And if it's cloudy for three days, people start throwing fists. Because- yeah, you say, come to upstate New York and you won't see the sun for quite a while. It, it, and that's a challenge for me as well. I live off grid, so I have solar panels. Um, which is important because we realize that every time we have a heavy snowfall up here, we would lose power. Well, that's all fine and good for your refrigerated items, but it's not good for reading by uh, by candlelight. So, if you have solar power uh, when there's you know snow cover on the on the panels, do you, do you have to remove it? How does that work with uh, you know relying on on solar up here where it snows quite a bit? Where we live, of course, it's a you have to learn as you go. It's a dance that you learn as you, as you're dancing. So, last year when I had the panels, I would go out there and go ahead and pull off the snow. Um, you don't want to use any metal tools because you don't want to scratch it. So this year, what I did is I put in a, an elevated platform right in front of them. It's on a small uh, rise back behind my cabin. So I actually go out there and just brush off the snow. Um, because the panels are black, whatever solar radiation we have out there has a tendency to go ahead and melt the rest of it. What is my backup plan? Backup generator. I have a backup generator which will actually charge my batteries but I don't have to use it very often. Maybe maybe a couple times a month in a, a couple times a month in the dead of winter. So that's great. So when we're getting even just sporadic sunshine, you're getting some some energy with that. You're okay. If you get a really long, uh, cloudy stretch, then maybe you go to the backup generator. If it's really cloudy, a lot of overcast, and we're not getting a lot of sun, it, it might be about a three day period. But once I get down to about maybe seventy four to seventy percent capacity. I'll kick that generator on for about four hours. What about wind? Do you use wind or know anyone that does? Not so much. And I thought about it myself. But the thing about wind turbines is you have to get up there and do maintenance from time to time. Now, I'm, I'm a pretty spry guy for 61 years old, but uh, I really don't want to walk up a tower. Even though we're on the upslope of, of Lake Ontario and we can get considerable winds, we do have blowdown. Um, and, and that's why it's important walking around out in the woods. Look up from time to time so you don't get killed by a branch coming down. It, w- it would ruin the holidays. 
<laughs> yeah, for sure. Mark, a pleasure talking with you today. Do you have any last final uh, quotes or any thoughts on life? You've shared a lot of wisdom from your life. I know you love to read and learn and stuff like that. Any, any last words of wisdom to leave our listeners with? Oh my gosh, now you, you're, you're testing me here. And, and I didn't come prepared. Now, now I'm going to have to stand up and, and kind of take for that. The important thing is this. You know, Grandma always said, believe half of what you see and a quarter of what you hear. And for, for, for most of my, my friendly time travelers out there on the planet, I want you to think for yourselves. It's really important. And, and one of the things I used to do is I used to do a lot of public speaking. And I would wax eloquently back and forth and everything else. And at the end of it, I would say, and in final conclusion, don't believe a damn word I just said. And the audience would roar. I said, it's more important for me to know that instead of me spoon-feeding you anything that I just gave you and you take it for face value, go out and educate yourselves. Because in that light, whatever you have in you, all your challenges, all your failures, the, the, the books that you've read, the movies you've seen, they all help actually create your philosophy in life. But there's not much new under the sun. I mean, me personally, I've stole from Jesus, okay? I, I've, I've plagiarized Shakespeare. But, but in that light, does it make me a better person? Because in this, in this life, it doesn't matter whether they, they remember me or whatever I said. Did I leave behind, I guess, an example which other people could emulate? That's kind of cool. Well, that's right. And I'm a father as well. And I was thinking, you know, um, I've said a couple of times, I really want to teach my kids how to think, not what to think, you know, because they're going to be in situations that no one could have foreseen. And hopefully they can think on their feet and do problem solving and, and you know, be rational and, and make good choices like and, that. And, and the good thing about a parent is, is you remember how things were when they were small. Yes, culturally things have changed, but what's going on between your ears, it's still confusing. I mean, do they have all the answers? Oh, of course not. I'm a, I'm a grandfather. I don't have all the answers, but I want to find out. My wife asked me one time, she goes, what do you want to know? I said everything um, because you have to keep learning every single day. I don't listen to a lot of people. I read and make my own judgments. And yeah, that's, that's right. And constantly, you know, I, I've heard the the really the best thinkers are constantly reading and even being willing to adjust their opinion or their perspective on something as they read new information, you know, that they're not locked in to, to one, you know, so many people just get locked in. This is a way I'll always think. And we need to be always reading and taking in new information and being willing to adjust our beliefs. Yeah. Even, even with a weekly article that I write for the local paper here, I actually plagiarize this from, from Dennis Miller. Even when I get done just just ranting about stuff, and it's usually constitutional in nature. My last words are, hey, I could be wrong. No, that's good. It, it's uh, good to keep a humble perspective and to, and to keep humor and everything. Mark, a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for taking time. Um, it's a joy to, to have this conversation, and uh, I hope we have many more. You know what? You're smiling, so I, I hope you had a good time, but also, too, with your listeners. You know what? We need we need to entertain, but also in that light, we also need to educate. Go out, go out there and get them. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. Mark has such a dynamic and exciting personality. It made recording this episode a whole lot of fun. We covered a lot of content. This was the first episode where we got into winter weather. We talked about how to build and survive in places with prolonged cold and heavy snowfall during the winter. This was the first time we also interviewed a building code official. And I just wanted to give a shout out and a thank you to the building code officials around the country. They're unsung heroes, really 
often they're working a thankless job where people come in and maybe sometimes complain about building codes and regulations and requirements. But I'll tell you, in uh, a lot of the Gulf Coast work that I've done, I've seen where people say after a storm hits or after a hurricane hits, wow, I'm glad that we had those codes because my building survived and otherwise it might not have. To our faithful listeners, thank you so much for listening to the GeoTrek podcast. We're so excited to be launching here into season two. We're going to have a lot of fun and interesting and educational stories related to how to adapt to extreme weather around the world. On behalf of the GeoTrek podcast production team, this is Dr. Hal Needham signing off. We'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.